there's a popular hike in Zion National Park called the Angel's Landing Trail. In some sections, the trail is less than three feet wide. And some of the exposed edges of this trail are sheer drop-offs of more than a thousand feet. If you drift a, a few feet to your left or a few feet to, the, to your right, they say that you're likely to meet some of the angels that gave the trail its name. For some perspective on just how staggeringly high this trail is, take a close look at this photo. You'll see two sets of colored specks. Those are hikers. The trail is cut into the rock, and hikers use a metal chain to steady themselves as they scramble up to the breathtaking views at the top. Well, our text this morning feels to me a bit like the angel's landing trail. On both sides of passages like this, there are sheer drop-offs. And we're at the point in our study now where we need to address a difficult question that up to this point we've been able to avoid, and that's the question of the so-called warning passages in Hebrews. Warning passages are not unique to Hebrews. They're found throughout the New Testament, but Hebrews has some of the most strongly worded warnings in the New Testament. And if we don't understand why these texts are here, we'll have a difficult time understanding not only Hebrews, but many other texts as well, including some of the words of our Lord Jesus Himself. Here's what I see. On one side of this trail is the sheer drop-off to what the Puritans called practical antinomianism. Now, that's a big word, but it's a simple idea. What I'm talking about is Christians who affirm with their lips the need for God's moral law, for holy living in the Christian life. But their own life or their counsel to others or their preaching contradicts that because they have an aversion to frequent and forceful exhortations to holy living. They hesitate to embrace God's grace in giving people urgings, exhortations, and warnings. This way of thinking has even infiltrated some of the so-called gospel-centered churches. And it, it can sound like this. Stop telling me that I must persevere. Stop telling me that I must strive after holiness with warnings like Hebrews 12, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's just law. Do, do, do. That's all I hear when you say those things. And that's a form of practical antinomianism. The practical antinomian is the hiker who's quick to tell the rest of the group that that sign over there, the one that says, don't wander off the trail or you'll die, well, that sign is not the thing that's going to save you which of course is true, but it completely misses the gracious intention of the one who posted the sign. Now, there's much truth in what the practical antinomian says, so don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He usually has good intentions, 
But the practical antinomian is always in danger of minimizing the commands of God, of undercutting some of the motives for holiness that we find in the Scriptures, and even of slipping into loose living. But on the other side of this trail is the sheer drop-off to legalism. The legalist hears these warnings, and he loves them. And he embraces the warnings, and then he jumps onto the hamster wheel of performance. Oh, he takes his holy living seriously, but he is fueled by a false notion that the degree of perfection in his performance is the degree to which he pleases God. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Tithe 11%. And don't smoke, cuss, or chew, or chase after women that do. And God will be happier with you. The hamster wheel of performance is deadly, and it leads to only one of two destinations, either to self-righteousness or to utter despair, depending upon how well you think you're doing. A legalist is the hiker who spots a sign that says, don't wander too close to the edge. And he sets out to define exactly what too close to the edge means. And he determines that it means precisely 24 inches. So anything closer than 24 inches to the edge is a clear violation of park rules and regulations. And though he can't judge the hearts of others, he's pretty sure that those hikers who do cross the 24-inch boundary are not real hikers. So as we come to the first of the warning passages in Hebrews, we need to be alert. There are dangers on either side of this narrow trail. We want to take the warning seriously, but we must take care not to slip into practical antinomianism on the one hand or into legalism on the other. Before we go to the text, though, let's recap chapter 1. The author of Hebrews is writing to struggling Christians, and he is encouraging them to persevere, to stand firm, and not to drift away from the faith. And he does that primarily by using his pen to shine forth the glory and the majesty of the Son of God. That's key. His primary method of motivating these struggling believers is not the warnings, where we're going to spend most of our morning together. Rather, the author is urging them to lift their eyes and look to Jesus, because Jesus is the one through whom God has spoken with finality in these last days. Jesus is the one who God declared the heir of all things. Jesus is the one who created out of nothing the world and everything in it. Jesus is, the, is God the Son, the effulgence of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the one who sustains the existence and the movement of every subatomic particle in the universe by the word of his power. The author is urging these believers to look to the one who made purification for their sins and who now sits highly exalted at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. That is the picture this author paints of Jesus in just the first four verses of this book. He is shining forth the glory and the majesty of the Son of God and urging Christians to look and to listen to what God has revealed through him. The emphasis should be very clear. In verses 4 to 14, then, the author advances his argument. If it wasn't already clear, he now declares that the name of Jesus is infinitely greater than the name of angels. And he proves that by stringing together seven Old Testament pearls. From Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, he shows that God crowns Jesus, not angels, with the royal title of son. From Deuteronomy 32, he shows that God demands that even the angels must worship his son. And for a fiercely monotheistic people like the Jews, the implications of that is crystal clear. God alone is to be worshipped. So if God is ordering creatures to worship Jesus, then Jesus must be God, yet somehow distinct from the Father. From Psalm 104, the author shows that God made angels to be his servants and to do his bidding. In contrast, he shows in Psalm 45 that Jesus is not a mere servant, but reigns from high upon a throne that will last forever and ever and ever. And then from Psalm 102, he again shows that Jesus is the creator of all things. And from the seventh Old Testament pearl, Psalm 110, he shows that Jesus is now sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high, reigning with absolute authority as the necks of his enemies are being crushed under his foot. That is Jesus in his exaltation. And that is the glory and the majesty that the author of this letter is calling you to behold. He wants you to see that because it is only in Jesus that you, struggling Christian, can find a high priest willing and able to sympathize with your weaknesses and to make purification once for all for your sins. Because it is only in Jesus that you can find the strength to persevere in this life as you strip away sin and run towards your heavenly prize. And because it's only in Jesus that you can find the kind of faith that sees rising again to a better life more desirable than avoiding torture or mocking or being cut down by the sword in this life. And now we enter chapter 2. And don't pay attention to the chapter break. The author is not starting a new topic. Rather, he is bringing his argument to a boil. Having established beyond doubt that Jesus is infinitely exalted above angels, he now issues a grave warning. You must pay closer attention to the gospel to what God has revealed through his son. If you drift away from that, if you neglect this great salvation, you will not escape the final judgment. And this is where our trail begins to narrow. We now face the question of these warning passages. There are five of them in this letter. 
although different scholars divide them up different ways. Let's try to make sense of this first one so that we can read this book well and receive the message the author intended. The question is this, why? Why are there warnings addressed to Christians to persevere in faith or face judgment? Or as this warning has it, why are Christians told that if they neglect the gospel, there's no escape? And you should feel the weight of that dilemma because you know what the Bible teaches about the eternal security of believers. You know that if you put your trust in the finished work of Christ alone to rescue you from your sin, you are united with Christ. You are justified. You are redeemed. You are adopted as his child. You have eternal life, which by definition can never come to an end. No one and no thing can separate the believer from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the will of him who sent me, said Jesus, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And listen to the confidence of the Apostle Paul. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. From texts like those and many others, we rest assured. We rest confident that once a sinner puts his trust in Christ alone, he is united with Christ and saved, period. But if that's true, then why warn believers that if they don't persevere in faith, they won't be saved? That's a fair question. Spurgeon frames the problem like this. If Christians can fall away and cease to be Christians, they cannot be renewed again to repentance. Now, now he's, he's speaking about a different warning text that we won't come to for probably another six months, but he's, he's asking about the, question, the, the word if. If Christians can fall away, but says one, You say they cannot fall away. What is the use of putting this if in? Like a bugbear to frighten children? Or like a ghost that can have no existence? My learned friend, who art thou that repliest against God? If God has put it in, he has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. Well, God has indeed wise reasons and excellent purposes for warning passages like this. Let me suggest five. Wise reason number one, warning passages are a means. Not the only means, not even the key means, but certainly one of the means God uses to keep you from falling. God sovereignly ensures that the newly born again believer goes from regeneration and justification all the way to glorification, and he uses means. He may have used a fumbling friend to share the gospel with you, and the power of his word 
spoken through that feeble-voiced friend, breathed life into a man dead in his sins. It's a silly charge that some make against the Calvinists. They say, why evangelize? If all who will be saved were predestined, then they're going to be saved whether we evangelize them or not. And that is a silly charge precisely because God uses means in the saving of souls. So we respond to those accusations by affirming how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? God uses means to accomplish his will. And oh, what a joy to be used by him for that end. And further, one of the means he uses to keep his elect from falling away is warning passages like this. The sign on the angel's landing trail says, don't wander off the path. That is not an irrelevant sign to the hikers. It must be heeded. It is wise and excellent in its purposes. It is designed to keep you from falling. Here's Spurgeon again. O Christian, this warning is put in to keep thee from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terror of the law showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There's a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why? To tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. So wise reason number one, warning passages are a means that God uses to keep you, believer, from falling away. Wise reason number two, Warning passages are a means of leading the believer to a greater dependence upon God. I hope you'll all agree with this statement. If you were able to fall away, to lose your salvation, you most certainly would have. If you know that to be true, then where must you put your trust and keep your trust so that you don't fall? That's right. You put all your trust, you cling by faith to him who alone is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Wise reason number three. Warning passages are a means to excite holy fear and caution in the believer. Spurgeon says these warnings are calculated to excite fear. And this holy fear helps keep the Christian from falling. Grace engenders a holy caution because we feel that if we were not preserved by divine power, we would perish. Take care then, Christian, for this warning is a caution. Now that idea is quite controversial. I've read well-known theologians that thumb their nose at the very suggestion that fear has any role as a motive for holiness. Well, the author of Hebrews doesn't think so. 
in addition to the five warning passages, listen to what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. A holy fear is a valid motivation. So let these warning passages do their work in your heart of stirring up the gracious affection of holy fear. Wise reason number four. Warning passages are a means to excite gratitude for the one who saved you from falling, the one who is saving you from falling, and the one who will safely bring you home in the end. Spurgeon has an odd illustration for this one. Some of you might not like it. He says, suppose you say to your little boy, don't you know, Tommy, that if I were to if I were not to give you your dinner or your supper, that you would die? Now, that's the warning. There is nobody else to give Tommy his dinner or his supper. What then? Does the child think that you're not going to give him his dinner and supper? He knows you will, and he is grateful to you for them. And that's the way we are to read these warnings. As a grave glimpse into the consequences of falling and yet knowing confidently that your God will keep you from falling, that stirs up gratitude within your heart. You're hiking angels landing, and I know I run the risk of overusing this illustration. It, it breaks down at a point. It's just a human illustration. But this time it's in the dead of night. It's pitch black and not even a lantern can be seen down on the canyon floor. You're, a, you're disoriented, and you have no idea of the mortal dangers that are immediately to your left or to your right. So you cling to the chain as you scramble to the top. You read and you heed the warnings. And you are immensely grateful for all of their instruction and for all of their warnings because they are wise and they are excellent. You don't begrudge them because you know that they are a means of preserving your life. Wise reason number five. Warning passages are meant to stir within you a concern and a compassion for those who are speeding headlong to their eternal destruction. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's another warning. But for the believer, knowing that judgment is coming excites within them a holy concern and a holy compassion for all the souls around them that are barreling unprepared toward the day of judgment. So those are the five wise reasons for warning passages. There are others, but those will have to do. So as you read the scriptures and come to these warnings, please remember that you are on a narrow trail. Don't downplay them or dismiss them like the practical antinomian. Let them do, your, do the work in your heart. Let them motivate you to persevere in faith. 
That's what they're for. But never look to them or to your performance and obeying them to somehow improve your standing before God. That's what the legalist does with them. So, I just spent half the sermon on the introduction. And I did that because I really want you to understand why these warnings are in the scriptures. If you get clarity on that, you'll have a much easier time understanding Hebrews and many other New Testament texts. But now let's walk to the first two and a half verses of this chapter, and I'll make some brief comments as we go. First, there is a call. Verse 1, therefore, and you know that that word tells you right away that this is the point of the argument, this is the point that the argument up to this point has led up to. Jesus is infinitely superior to angels, therefore, here's what I'm calling you to do. We must pay closer attention. Now, it is no mistake that the author switches to the pronoun we. Without trying to prove it earlier, I said that this warning passage is addressed to believers. I have three reasons I believe that that's the case. First, this section we're in is the point. It's the inference of all that has been said before it. So unless the author indicates a clear shift in who he's addressing, it just makes sense that he's addressing the same people the rest of the letter is addressed to, namely, struggling Christians. Number two, the author assumes that his readers understand a lot of things about the Old Covenant. Many were probably converted Jews. Throughout the letter, the author emphasizes the reality that they are no longer under the Old Covenant, which tells me that these are New Covenant believers. And number three, the author includes himself in each of these warnings. He uses we, not you. And he does it three times in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And he does it another three times in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us. Okay, it wasn't a we. It was attested to us by those who heard. So for those reasons, I am convinced that these warnings are addressed to Christians. Now here's the call. We must pay closer attention. The word translated pay attention has a wide range of meaning. The New Testament uses it to express everything from giving attention to to being devoted to, to being addicted to. Remember the qualifications for deacon that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3? He says, deacons likewise must, not, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. That word addicted is the same word translated here as pay attention. Now, be addicted wouldn't be a great way of translating this, but it does capture something of the intensity with which you must give attention to what you have heard. The call is to pay attention. 
It's like that little paper instruction sheet that you get with your new power tool, like a sawzall. And the first thing it tells you is what? Read the instructions. Read them carefully before you use the sawzall. And then the paper uses little warning symbols and exclamation marks and uh, little faces with X's for eyes. It is urging you to pay much closer attention because electrocution or even death can result from the improper use of your sawzall. Well, that is the kind of attention the author is urging here. And to what are you to give that kind of serious attention? We're still in verse 1. Pay attention to what you have heard. And what that is is defined in verse 3. It is the great salvation, or in a word, it is the gospel. You must pay much closer attention to the gospel. That's the call. Now, what's the purpose or the reason for that call? The answer is in the second half of verse 1. Pay attention to the gospel, lest we drift away from it. Now, that's probably a nautical term, like like a boat slipping anchor, floating away from the safety of the harbor and drifting out into the dangers at sea. So the purpose of the call is to pay attention so you won't drift away from the gospel. Indeed, the gospel, as you know, is of first importance. It is of primary importance. The core of it is that Christ died for sins that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. That little definition comes directly from 1 Corinthians 15. And that passage also makes a very important point and gives us insight into the salvation of believers. It says the gospel is for salvation, past, present, and future. And this is important for understanding these warnings. It is the gospel received by the believers. That is, they were saved. It is the gospel in which believers stand. That's present tense and continuous. And it is the gospel by which believers are being saved. That is present tense with a future completion. So if someone asks you, are you saved? You can smile and say, yes, I was saved I am being saved, and by God's grace, I will be saved. I point that out because future salvation is what is in view in these warning passages. Remember, they're one of the means God uses to preserve His people. That is to preserve or keep them for their future salvation so that they will be saved. So the call is to pay much closer attention to the gospel And the purpose of the call is so that you will not drift away. In verses 2 to 4, the author gives his entire argument in a nutshell. And this is the explanation. His argument is an argument from the lesser to the greater. What is true in lesser things applies in even greater measure to greater things. If I get hurt driving my car into a brick wall at 10 miles an hour, I'll get even more hurt if I drive it into the brick wall at 50 miles an hour. 
And that's the argument from lesser to greater. And apparently, it was common for Jewish rabbis to use that line of reasoning. So the readers here would probably be accustomed to that way of thinking. Here's the lesser side of his argument. Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, pause, the author here is calling attention to the fact that angels were involved in declaring the law on Mount Sinai. Now, if you've read Exodus 19 to 23 or so, you'll know that that is not explicit in the text. However, there are hints of it in passages like Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68. On the basis of those texts, the Jews formed a tradition that angels were involved in the giving of the law. But it's not just a tradition. Stephen mentions this in his sermon that he preached just prior to his martyrdom in Acts 7. And Paul mentions it explicitly in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3. The point is that the Mosaic law was declared in some sense by angels and it proved reliable. That is, every act of disobedience, every refusal to heed the law of God earned a just punishment. For example... God said, you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean. And that's exactly what happened. It proved reliable. When Israel refused to heed God's gracious warnings, she received the just punishment for her disobedience. God had declared to her through mere servants like angels. That's the lesser side of the argument. If that was the case, how much worse then will it be for those who refuse to heed God's final word, declared not by angels, but by His highly exalted Son? And the answer to that question comes in the the form of a rhetorical question. Verse 3, how... Shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Answer, you won't. You will not escape if you neglect such a great salvation. That's why we call this a warning passage. Now, let me bring this to a close by saying a word about what it means to neglect such a great salvation. You now, know, you now know how to read warning passages. Uh, you now have heard the warning. You know the consequence of not heeding the warning. But what exactly is it that you are neglecting? What is so wicked that will leave you without escape on the day of judgment? The answer might surprise you. You see it in a story Jesus told in Matthew chapter 22. He said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. 
my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Pay close attention to what is being asked of these people. Their king simply invites them to come. To come to a wedding feast for his son. But they paid no attention. And that word paid no attention is the same word in our text translated neglect. To neglect is to pay no attention to or to ignore. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. This was flying right in the face of the Jews who were rejecting Jesus and who had previously rejected the word of the prophets. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. What does it mean then to neglect such a great salvation? In a word, it is to ignore the call of the king to come, to come to a wedding feast. The connection with neglecting the gospel is this. The gospel is precisely that. It is a call to come. Come to me, King Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The gospel is the good news that says, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me. Did you hear that? It's a call to pay much closer attention. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And that, I believe, is the key. That's the key motive for holiness. It is the call issued by a loving king to come and feast with him at his table. Nothing could be more irrational than to ignore that call. It's not only irrational. These warning texts tell you it is suicidal to neglect such a great salvation. You will not escape. So, brothers and sisters, for the preservation of your souls, heed the warning signs posted on the trail. Do not neglect such a great salvation. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, we do want to take these warning passages seriously. And Father, we want to not slide off this trail 
on one side or the other. But do, we do want to be earnest as we heed the warnings that you have so graciously given to us. Oh, Father, may they, may they kindle within us gratitude. May they give us a holy compassion and a holy care for those around us who are barreling toward their destruction. And Father, may we see clearly that these are gracious means that you use to preserve your people. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that it would go forth and that it would accomplish exactly what you will. I know you will do that. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.